So whenever I see a second AC that when I'm trying to put the camera down because all of a sudden I'm, I stepped in a puddle and I look over and he's laughing and chatting with uh, a PA or whatever, that is uh, an annoyance. Obviously, those things happen to everybody. But when it happens more than once, when it becomes a theme with that person that they're not paying attention when they should be, that to me is the only deal breaker. Hey guys, welcome back to the Camera Department Podcast. My name is John, a focus puller from Miami, Florida, and I'm here with my co-host Alex. Kenjao. We're also joined today by a cinematographer in Miami. His name is Randy Valdez. Is this where I say hello? Hello? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, usually you say hello after they introduce you. <laughs> I'll get better. Okay, okay. And we look forward to hearing stories from you guys from our industry. To get involved in the conversation, make sure you like and subscribe to this podcast. You can join in the conversation over at our Instagram, at the Camera Department Podcast. Link in the description. So today we have scheduled to talk with Randy about some gear. Some gear that he would use as a cinematographer. Um, not really for ACs, but um, maybe he can give us a little bit of light on a light meter. Did you intend the pun? I feel like you intended <laughs> yes, the pun. He, he definitely <laughs> it just came out. Well done. Well done. Um, so a light, I think a light meter is one of those um, tools that are more questioned and are probably become less popular uh, today. I still think is extremely useful and um, like all tools, right? The, the, the more tools you have knowledge of, uh, the more flexible you can be uh, for the job. I, I absolutely don't always rely only on my light meter, uh, but there are times where uh, a light meter is the only tool that I can use for the moment, right? So the most obvious example, I think, uh, where light meters come in handy is in pre-lights. Uh, sometimes you have to pre-light a set without the camera being there, either because of budget or because the, the camera is on a different part of the job at that moment. Um, or during prep or whatever. So if you can, uh, if you can become comfortable with a light meter, um, even in the digital age, um, you can light and measure and, and build your lighting design without ever having to look through a monitor or through a camera. That's the most obvious case. But even when I have a camera on set, I find a light meter to be um, extremely useful, more than anything, because it's an objective tool. So Often you're looking at a monitor and you're outside and it's really bright. So uh, your eyes, your iris, right, closes down and the monitor looks darker. And sometimes it's the opposite. You're in a dark sound stage all day. So your iris tends to open up. So uh, when you look at the monitor, uh, naturally, it's going to look brighter. Hmm. Um, a light meter is not subjective that way. A light meter is going to read out the light uh, no matter what it is. So you could always um, use it as a way of contrasting what your eyes are perceiving that was some yeah, good that was, insight yeah, that was, I never... do you do you typically always use both or do you just rely on one or the other in i i would like to answer that by saying that i always use both right like that's the cinematographer that i that i want to consider myself but 
the truth is that a lot of times I'm too lazy to uh, bring out the light meter. And usually the situations when I'm too lazy to bring out the light meter are situations that are common to me, right? So if I've shot in a, in a specific type of situation often, uh, like here in Miami, we shoot outside all the time, I, I become already accustomed to knowing how to interpret the way I'm perceiving the monitor. Um, so I may not bring out the light meter, but whenever I'm doing either something new, uh, meaning in a new scenario or a new situation, or wherever I'm pushing the limits of what I'm doing. What do I mean by that? If I'm purposely trying to make a scene dark and I want to push it as dark as possible, then I break out the light meter just to make sure that I'm close to the edge but not going over it. Um, same with the opposite, right? If I have a lot of clouds in, in the background, um, I may break out a light meter just to make sure that I'm letting those clouds become white but not um, what we call clipping, which means that it's so white that it loses detail. Um, so in situations like that, I will always bring out the light meter. But when it's a more standard job, whether it's an interview or just a typical commercial out in a park where everything is uh, pretty predictable, um, you know, more often than I'd like to admit, I'll be too lazy to break out uh, the light meter. Okay. Uh, can you explain to us a little bit of how you use a light meter? Like, what are your, like, I know it's a little bit hard to not see it in front of you. So to understand. No, that's okay. So basically, or... do you touch the on button or? Yeah. I, I usually start with the on button, but after that, I find out that I forgot to put the batteries and then it's uh, a whole got, deal. Got right. it. Okay. All so right. batteries first, Look. then on button. Okay. Usually. Okay. So, uh, but all kidding aside, there's really two ways of using the light meter. Um, and this is going to get highly technical so i'll try uh, without being a, yeah without being an educator i'll try to be as clear as possible so there's incident reading which is uh, the light falling on your subject and there's spot reading which is the light reflecting off your subject right so one literally measures how much light is hitting the subject and the other one literally measures how much light is reflecting off the surface right um, for the most part, incident reading, which is a light hitting the subject, is the most faithful read um, because you will be able to say exactly how much light is falling on that object, set those settings on the camera, and then the natural reflective attributes of the object will uh, play its true science course, right? Just like our eyes do. Um, sometimes, though, either that's impossible or not uh, the best way. For example, I cannot measure how much light is falling on clouds. Um, that's a that's obviously something that I would have to rely on spot metering for, or right, <laughs> <laughs> or even a white building in the background. You're not gonna go walk a block down the uh, away from set just to measure how much light is falling on a building. So you'll use the spot meter in in that case. And finally, uh, again going back to when you're pushing something too much. So if I'm if I'm lighting uh, a character who's wearing a black shirt, right? If I measure the incident light falling on that black shirt and I want it to be underexposed, I'm risking to underexpose it so much that the black loses all complete detail. Huh. So I'll spot meter the black shirt just to make sure that I, the black is only four stops below my exposure, which means it'll be black, but it'll have detail as opposed to if it was six stops, under my exposure, then it would just clip and just be a black mass, right? Like a letterbox yeah. uh, type black. Yeah. Um, so 
that's that's mostly the case. Whenever I'm measuring faces, I try and use uh, incident, meaning how much light is falling onto the face, and then let the face reflect the appropriate amount of light, which will equal the appropriate skin tone. And when things are either too far or I'm really pushing them towards the limit, I'll use uh, spot medium. Wow, okay. that's definitely some good insight on what the process is, especially when using the light meter. Before we get so far, far ahead into our interview and stuff, one of the main questions we should ask before we get into the other ones is, you're you're considered now a DP, but how did you enter the business? Did you start as a camera trainee or a camera assistant? Like, how did you work yourself up to where you're at today? So I started uh, in lighting, right? I went to film school. Um, like a lot of us in the industry and like a lot of us in the industry paid school loans forever. I uh, still am. <laughs> or still paying. Uh, yeah. Still, Sad still mate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Naviant. Naviant now. Oh. So anyways, um, so uh, I went wanting to be a director and I still direct my own projects and that is still an ambition that I pursue. Uh, but while in film school, uh, working with other cinematographers, I started to kind of really get attracted to lighting. And I would work with other cinematographers that I wanted to learn from. And what I was able to provide was help with lighting. Um, and when I got into the industry, naturally I became an electric, um, then eventually became a gaffer until finally, as of recent, I've been lucky enough to work mostly as a cinematographer. So my background is definitely from a lighting perspective. I think obviously there's two approaches or two routes to become a cinematographer. Either you come up through camera departments uh, like you two, or you come up through the electric lighting department like I did. Hmm. I never thought about it like that. Do you use any of the tools on cameras to measure your light? Absolutely. So there are, uh, there are ways to specifically gauge what your camera is reading that digital tools can do better than a light meter, right? So the number one tool that I'm always... Um, using is exposure assist. Uh, there are several ways to use exposure assist. One is certain uh, smart monitors like small HD um, give you tools to use exposure assist. Or now the newer firmwares actually let you design your own exposure assist. And I'll get more into what that means. And then the other way is that some cameras, maybe all cameras now, or at least all professionally uh, graded cameras, uh, also have their own exposure assist. What exposure assist looks like is almost uh, like a heat map, right? If you would think of um, some sci-fi movie where subjects are going through a scanner and uh, the monitor output is reading red where the heart is because it's the temperature is higher and it's reading blue um, in the background because it's colder, that type of imagery, that's what exposure assist looks like. But obviously, instead of giving you readouts of temperature, it's giving you readouts of exposure. So typically, um, that'll mean that whatever is uh, red in this uh, temperature looking map, whatever's red will be too bright where it's losing detail. And whatever's purple is too dark that it's losing detail. Green is usually around the middle, which is where you want skin tones. And then, you know, the specific colors um, are, are variables depending on the exact tool you're using. But that allows you to see exactly, okay, so under the table, it's blue, which means it's black, but it's not purple, so I still have detail. And the cloud over there is orange, but it's not red, so I know it's white, but I'm not losing detail. 
Um, and so it allows you to pinpoint exactly where in the frame um, you you are as far as exposure and, and, and what each object in your composition is behaving like as far as exposure. And let me ask you this. When you're exposing using exposure assist, are you more accustomed to using the RE exposure assist or the RED or the one that Sony uses? So for me, the one I'm most comfortable with is the RE one for two reasons. One, because uh, whenever possible, I shoot uh, with an Alexa. And whenever possible means either that the budget allows for it or um, that the project allows for it. There are some circumstances where I have chosen for creative reasons to use other cameras, but those are um, less likely. And the other reason why I'm more comfortable with the RE1 is because the small HD monitor includes the RE uh, exposure assist color coding. So that allows me to kind of keep it consistent, which obviously the more consistent um, we can keep it, the easier it is going to be for us to interpret. Okay. So basically would use your preference and using monitor would be towards as a reference monitor would be used a small HD. But are we talking about the onboard monitor? Or are we talking about a, a 17 inch, 24 inch? So the small HD monitors, with the exception of the, um, John, remind me, is it called the Cine, Cine monitor, the new one they released? Yeah, the Cine 7. Right. So the Cine 7 is a fantastic monitor. Every other small HD monitor, I think, are the worst monitors to ever be in the industry. So that for, being for said, for exposure, for exposure, <laughs> is that a sponsor? Are they a sponsor? Are they a sponsor? We want them as a sponsor. <laughs> so what I meant by the worst is that they're the best. Um, no, but you're, you're, no, you're but, speaking from a, a yeah, perspective for, of exposure, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, well, I think here's what's what's important, right? So I think that small HDs are the worst monitors ever. Yet I don't remember one set that I've been in in the last five years where I haven't either brought my own small HD monitor or have requested one, right? So how do those two things uh, happen at the same time? So I don't trust their picture whatsoever to tell me exposure. They're anything under 20 IRE, meaning anything close to blacks becomes very muddy and very messy. So it, it, it makes you overcompensate and avoid blacks that would otherwise mm. look very attractive and clean on other monitors. So you, all of a sudden have to guess like, do I hate this because the monitor is not handling it well, or do I hate it because I hate it, right? So yeah. small HD monitors tend to be very difficult to read from that perspective. However, their software is incredible and I think has changed at least the way I worked and the way most other people work. And I'm not just saying this now because I'm raising your chances of getting them as a sponsor. I mean, <laughs> so what I usually do is that I'll have a small HD seven inch monitor on my camera that I only use for tools. I'll, I'll use it for the exposure assist that I just described. I'll use it for waveform, which is another exposure tool um, that is much more traditional, but still just as useful and we could get into as well. And I use it for vector scope, which helps me with uh, skin tones. And finally, like John says, if I'm ever again in the situation where I have to pull my own focus and John can attest that those situations should be as few as possible because I'm not great at it. Yep. Um, it'll allow me also to use focus assist. So I think it's a great tool, just not a tool that I would use the way we traditionally use monitors, which is to interpret the actual image. I use it more as a scientific calculator. Okay. What about, have you been able to film or seen some, um, 
reference footage when if working with a Flanders or a Trans Video or even a, a TV Logic? So a Flanders once, um, and they're amazing. TV Logics and Panasonics are also very consistent. I think the 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 best thing that could be said about Panasonics and TV Logics is that they're very consistent. So you don't have to worry about whether where did this 17-inch Panasonic come from or where did that 17-inch Panasonic come from. For the most part, if you get a Panasonic monitor and you uh, calibrate it to its default settings, um, you will get the same image if you put five of them side by side. So that makes them very predictable. And once you get accustomed to working with either one, you, you know what you're looking at. Flanders, though, is a whole different thing. Flanders, when you're looking at it, it doesn't matter what you think, it's telling you the truth. Um, and that is that gives you tremendous freedom because if it looks like it's too dark, then you, it's too dark. And if it looks like it's too bright, then it's too bright. Um, but unfortunately, you know, those are very expensive monitors and, and are very difficult uh, to gather. But there's some pros and cons. Uh, sometimes and I mean this, sometimes I work better when I don't trust the monitors. And sometimes I get lazy when I trust the monitor. So there's a pro and con to having a good monitor on set. Or a good AC. <laughs> or Well, there's only pros to having a good AC. Yeah. And um, usually when you do your scouting locations on most projects, do you use any apps? Yes. There's two main apps that I use. Um, a light meter and um, a sun surveyor app. Um, so the reason why I use light meter is, for example, if we're scouting a porch area, right, or or some outdoor area that is under a roof, I'll meter what's the difference of the light levels under that roof and what's the difference of the light levels beyond that roof so that I know how much I have to compensate to be able to keep both environments within exposure. Um, or if I'm uh, light metering inside a dark uh, area, right? Like uh, some type of basement area or stuff like that. I'll, I'll light meter just to make sure do we have enough ambience here with the existing lighting already or is it too dark and I'm going to have to supplement this uh, completely artificially. Uh, so a light meter, I, where I use it the most is during scouts. It's okay. um, not, not pre-lights, but we don't always get to pre-light. And then the Sun Surveyor app, I think, I, I, you know, I remember there was uh, once uh, when I was on scouts and I would impress producers and directors with this little app that would tell me where the sun was at six o'clock. Now I'm usually the one with the least updated app. Like producers are super eager to pull out their sun surveyor <laughs> app and, and, you know, everybody has this stuff now. So you have to have it just to save face. Uh, and let me ask you this. We, you spoke about having a light meter, having a small HD part of your kit. What else do you like to bring as part of your kit to set? Whenever I can, my own shoulder mount. Um, and that's just a comfort thing. Uh, I think a, a, big a big theme of everything I'm discussing here is comfort, right? So comfort, producers might think, means uh, us being able to work lazier, right? It's not just that, although there is some of that, but it's not just that. It really comes to the less I have to think about how to use my tools, the more I can think about the execution of the project, right? If, if I'm not thinking about, man, where is the center point of the shoulder mount so that I'm most comfortable or that, so that I can control the camera the easiest, then all my thinking power is focused on the execution of the shot. Uh, 
so any tool that I can bring that I can already use as second nature, um, I bring it because it's going to allow me then to uh, focus solely on what I'm trying to execute. Okay. Um, and a raincoat. And a raincoat. And a raincoat. Yeah, especially here yeah. in Florida. <clears throat> yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, this is Kathy from Film Filter Tags. We are a family-owned business specializing in custom filter tags, Pelican nameplates, and much more. Take a look at our website, filmfiltertags.com, and customize your tags today. If you don't see something you need, just reach out and we will help you. For a limited time only, we're offering a 10% off for the camera department podcast listeners. Simply use code TCDP10 at checkout. So tell me about uh, have you have you yourself because um, I know a lot of a lot of DPS um, you know make their way up through the you know through camera the department through the camera department. Um, did you ever um, before you became a DP? I know you went through you were a gaffer and stuff, but did you ever AC at any point? Yes, yes, I AC'd once, and and I have to answer your question in two parts, but I'll I'll answer it in this part first. I AC'd once. I was a second AC. Uh, really the only responsibility of a second AC is to pay attention and sleep, right? Um, obviously, the job requires a lot of stuff, but as long as you're paying attention uh, and, and, and you're working hard and you sleep well, you're going to do a good job and you're going to keep learning and you're going to become a better and better second AC until either uh, you step up or you just become the best second AC there is. Okay. I lost the slate every single take and I'm not exaggerating when I say every single take. I would slate and I would put it down, you know, because I don't know why. Where where, where were you at? Where were you shooting at? A supermarket. A supermarket. Oh, wow. So I was finding I was finding the slate between cereal boxes. <laughs> Luckily, the script supervisor girl that was on the job, uh, her and I were very good friends, and she on top of doing her job, would watch me to see where the hell I would put down the slate. <laughs> so at least the second time that we had to call tail slate because I couldn't find the slate was the last time anybody hired me to second ace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think you would have gotten, you should have gotten fired on that job. Yeah, I, I had friends, otherwise I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Aye. I think I think uh, I think the AC position requires one uh, a lot of attention to detail. You guys uh, deal with so many little cables and adapters, and you know um, that if you are not a person who is consciously taking notice of where you're putting things down or where you're putting things away or what you're using or what you're not using, it's going to be a, a a job that is difficult for. And I was always so attracted to. Uh, the image, right? Like what was happening with the image? What was the shot doing? Whatever, whatever. That I, uh, I'm not good at keeping track of of all those other little details. Um, so it, it quickly became evident to me that I was not going to be a good AC, and if I wanted to one day be a DP, that was not going to be the way for me to accomplish it. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't your route. Yeah. Nope. Good thing he went the other route, yeah. which I never knew nope. existed, but uh, it worked for him. Yeah. So uh, actually. Um, the second part that I said that I wanted to get to of that is that I did always shoot my own things. I never, when I was working as an electric or I was working as a gaffer or whatever, I was always shooting my own things, whether it was a little music video 
for my brother or a friend of my brother or whether it was a dance video for um, you know another family member or whatever I was always shooting my things uh, there's nothing uh, better for comfort than practice and we already talked about the value of comfort so could you attest that you did film some weddings in the beginning I filmed about everything that could be filmed in this <laughs> industry so weddings yeah <laughs> five, five. <laughs> Right. Weddings and high school football. Yes. Okay. Dang. The football would five, be five years of weddings. Let me tell you, though, um, there are a few things that I've had to do for a living that, have, that I've liked least or that I've liked less than shooting weddings, right? I could not stand shooting weddings. It, for me, it was the worst thing ever. However, there's no doubt that there is no better training for a cinematographer or a camera operator or anybody who wants to work in this industry than working weddings. And I absolutely would not have sped my career along uh, as fast as it did, right? Um, I wish it was faster, but still, I, I think my career moved along uh, fast enough. And, and that was in great part because of five years of doing weddings. Wow. Uh, you have to constantly adapt. You have to constantly interpret uh, difficult situations. You have to work quick. You have to be reliable, right? The, the one wedding you uh, mess up on you ruin that person's wedding forever. Yeah. You know, there's no take two. Um, nope. So that amount of pressure does two things. One, it makes you sharper at your skills, uh, at your abilities. And number two, trains you on how to work under pressure. And I think that we would all agree that one of the main elements or one of the main obstacles of being able to succeed on set is working under pressure. And there's no better uh, boot camp for that than working weddings. Well said. Very true. Well, no. Very Let true. me ask you this, uh, Randy. What is your preference in shooting? Do you are you more towards commercials, music videos, um, features, scripted work? Like, what's your what's your muse? For me, is uh, without a doubt narrative scripted work. Um, like that's why I got into this. That's what I love. Uh, to me, everything else is an opportunity to pay my bills and to train myself for narrative work. Um, it is absolutely my passion. Okay. As, as a director of photography, what is one thing that you dislike or are annoyed by that a camera assistant, either first or second, does? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that separately. So the number one thing that a second AC uh, will annoy me with is not paying attention, um, which is why I realized right away that I wasn't a good second AC because I wasn't paying attention. Um, <laughs> So I think the number one job of a second AC is to pay attention. Pay attention to what the first AC is doing. If he's struggling with something, help before he has to ask you. Hmm. Pay attention to what the cinematographer is doing. If he's struggling with something, help before he even has to ask you and so forth. And pay attention to what you're doing so you don't lose the slate in cereal boxes. I, I think that's the number one annoyance. Whenever I see a second AC that when I'm trying to put the camera down because all of a sudden I'm, I stepped in a puddle and I look over and he's laughing and chatting with uh, a PA or whatever. That is uh, an annoyance. Obviously, those things happen to everybody. But when it happens more than once, when it becomes a theme with that person that they're not paying attention when they should be, that to me is the only deal breaker. If you don't know uh, the difference between a 40 millimeter and a 50 millimeter, we can teach you that. If you don't know... Uh, 
what the easy rig is, we can teach you that, you know, and so forth. But if you're not paying attention, we can't teach you that. Hmm. For a first AC, the main, main, main problem that I have with a first AC is lack of communication, right? If I have to be constantly coming to my first AC and asking like, hey, is this okay? Like, are you going to be able to execute this? Can we execute this? If I have to be the one constantly asking that, that is a bad sign. If my first AC is constantly telling me like, hey, just so you know, uh, we got this, no problem. And if you want to push uh, the depth of field more, we can handle it. Or the opposite. Hey, we're really pushing the depth of field here. And I don't feel confident that I can track it uh, take after take. Um, can you buy me a little bit more ground? That to hmm. me is great. Don't don't make me guess what you need for us to execute this job. Tell me. Okay. That's great. That's from a, great advice. Definitely from a DP's perspective. That's really good yeah. to hear. Here's, yeah. here's another question for you. In your line of work, how long have you been doing this as a DP? Oh, uh, two months. As a, <laughs> it's a hard. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer because there's been there's been different stages. So as a commercial DP, four years, and in the industry, thirteen. Okay, and in that time period as a D DP. Have you ever come across a, um, has it ever been difficult to work with the, not naming names, but a director or another camera op? Man, uh, a, well, again, two different questions. Working with directors is by far the most difficult and evolving part of my profession. So what do I mean by that? As a cinematographer, you have a responsibility to bring a certain style, right? You're supposedly hired because either the client or the director likes the way you execute certain things, right? But then the other half of your job is to um, bring to life the vision of the director, right? So to execute his vision. N most important piece of advice for a cinematographer is never forget that you are executing the director's vision, right? So how you are able to execute both of those seemingly contradictory goals at the same time is always a very, very difficult to solve predicament. How do you communicate your own style into the piece while at the same time executing the director's vision? Some directors are better directors in the sense that they are aware of that and that they try and push your style to their execution without asking you to abandon it. Other directors couldn't care less about your style. And I feel like that's an inferior way of directing, not necessarily because of my own egocentric drive, but because there's no doubt that we're best at executing the things that come natural to us. So if a director tries to maximize my natural style, he's going to get better results than if a director forces me to do something that doesn't come natural to me. All right, guys, make sure you come back next week for our second half of our interview with Randy Valdez. Thanks for listening.